Today's reading is in Romans chapter 8. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what was the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the spirit have their minds set on what the spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the spirit lives, gives life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if, the spirit, but if by the spirit you put the death to death, the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the spirit of God are the children of God. The spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. This is God's word. Morning, everyone. My name's Phil. I'm the Associate Minister. It's my privilege to be taking us through Romans 8 this morning. Keep the Bible open. Let's pray. Father God, as we peer into deep and wonderful things this morning, please would you grant us minds that can understand the deep things of God, but also would you grant us hearts that believe and are moved by them, that our lives might reflect that for your glory's sake. Amen. Now, I guess um, for most of us, when we were teenagers, the worst thing in the world was my parents. So utterly uncool, so lame, so embarrassing. There is nothing worse in the world than your parents when you're a teenager. But though, of course, there are other families and their parents are cool. And I wish I was in that family. Dad, who's a fighter pilot, like one of my friends at school. The mum who let the kids have a glass of wine with dinner. Mm. Or the family with the swimming pool. That's the family I'd like to be in. Now, to be a Christian... 
is to move actually to a new family, not to leave your biological family, but more fundamentally to move to a new spiritual family, the family of God. And it is the best family in the world. Romans 8, 12 to 17 is all about what does it mean to join the family of God, to be one of his children? Now, we live in a world, in a culture, in a city which is very confused about my, my identity, uh, what tribe I should belong to, what badge I should wear, who, who am I, who are my people? All around us, there are people shouting very loudly, come join this, this movement, this identity, this family, this is the best place to be. Join us. And if we're going to be joyful, confident Christians, and if we're going to be effective in attracting a very confused culture to, to come and join the people of God, then we need to both understand and to own the privilege and the purpose and the joy that comes with being able to say, I'm a child of God and nothing is so good as to be part of his family. Now, we had a a little break for a couple of weeks, but we're back in Romans 8, in many ways the greatest chapter of the Bible, and it has two great aims we saw a couple of weeks ago, to give us assurance and to give us hope. To give us assurance that if you trust in Jesus Christ, that you will be right with God, and nothing can change that. God has done everything to make you right with him. Assurance. And hope, to give us hope that, well... Whatever happens, if you trust in Christ, you'll make it safely to his eternal paradise. It begins, verse 1, with no condemnation from the wrath of God. And it ends, verse 37 to 39, with no separation from the love of God. Now this week we're going to see uh, what does it mean to live by the Spirit? Because as well as these two great aims, if you like, they, they form one central strand that runs through, which is, uh, a strand of two, two parts, which is look to Christ and live by his Spirit. Look to Christ and live by his Spirit. If you do, you'll have assurance and hope. And in this section, it's okay, uh, live by the Spirit. What does that mean? What does that actually look like in day-to-day life? Oh, the Bible has lots to teach about the Holy Spirit. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is a triune God. But these verses teach that central to what the Spirit does, central to who he is, is that he is the spirit of adoption, verse 15, who makes us children of God. And if we get that, if we get that, we'll learn that his making us children of God enables us to put sin to death, firstly, and to enjoy knowing God as Father. Let's work through it in those ways. Firstly, the Spirit empowers us to behave like children of God. As I said, we're, we're concentrating on 12 to 17 this week. Verse 12, therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. Now, if you help with the children's work, on a Sunday at church, you'll find it is not desperately difficult to work out who some of the children belong to. There are certain family resemblances. No, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> I'm not that stupid. But we, you know what I mean. You know what I mean. There is a family resemblance. Uh, it's no surprise that you're the children of them. Now, verses 12 to 14 are all about family resemblance, but it's not about the shape of your nose or the colour of your hair. 
Now, family resemblance for the family of God is moral. It's about the way you behave, the way you treat other people. The key thing about children in the, in, in the Bible is they're like their parents, like father, like sons and daughters. Jesus makes this point in the, in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, look, love your enemies because you're children of God the Father and God the Father makes the sun shine on the righteous and the unrighteous. In other words, if you're going to be a true child of God, you need to behave like God. And when you put your trust in Jesus, that is exactly what we become, children of God. And so behaviorally, we should be chips off the old block. Verse 14 really does spell that out. Those who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. The Spirit changes our attitudes and and our actions so that we resemble in our behavior God, that we are marked out as his children. Okay, verse 12. Let's work through, though, from the beginning. Verse 12. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it's not to the flesh, to live according to it. Now, if you misunderstand the first phrase, we'll get everything wrong, but often we do. Uh, Paul teaches we have an obligation to live for God rather than to live for sin. But I think we tend to hear that and think, okay, you're saying you owe God. He saved you. He's done his bit. Now you owe him. So you'd better start paying back the debt. You'd better live for God now. You'd better start being a good Christian. But that isn't really what Paul is teaching. He's not saying you've got a a, a legal obligation to repay God for his salvation. He's saying you have a logical obligation to obey the desires that God's spirit has put into your heart rather than the desires of your sinful nature. Okay, what on earth do I mean? Um, Well, the word therefore at the beginning of verse 12, shows that he is, in some senses, summarising what he's been saying. So go back to verse 2. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. God has set us free from the power of sin through the death of Jesus. And he did so, verse 4, so that we might live according to the Spirit. He says, there are now two powers. If you trust in Jesus, there are two powers at work in us. There is the flesh, which is not the physical me, it's shorthand for the sinful nature, the sinful desires that continue to live in all of us. That's one power. The other power is the power of the Holy Spirit. Verses 5 to 11, which we looked at a couple of weeks ago, explained the sinful nature, which still exists in us, it leads us to death, but the Holy Spirit brings life. So when he says, therefore, we have an obligation, but not to the sinful nature, He's saying, look, sin ruined your life. Sin left you facing hell. You don't know sin anything. Why would you serve sin? Jesus has set you free and has given you life and a relationship with God. You're free now to choose who are you going to serve. You have absolutely no obligation to serve something that just brought you misery and death. Instead, use your freedom to serve Jesus. Live by the Spirit. So you have an obligation to to live according to the Spirit, not your sinful desires, in the same way that you have an obligation to cash a million-pound check, should it be given to you this morning, rather than to live in debt, struggling to make ends meet. You have an obligation to eat JT's delicious lunch rather than to go scavenging in the bins around Mayfair after church because the food's there. It's that kind of obligation, a logical obligation. So positively, 
positively to, to do this, to live by the Spirit, verse 12, means becoming more like Jesus because he is the true Son of God. He was the bravest, truest, noblest, most morally beautiful man who ever lived. But we'll only become more like him if we also do what we're told negatively we have to do in verse 13, which is put to death the deeds of the flesh. Verse 13, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you'll live. Or to use the old language, to mortify them. You see, sin may no longer rule us, verse 2, but sin still has the power to tempt, to deceive, to choke, to corrupt, to master, to bring misery and ruin. And given all of that, we've got to take steps to put sin to death. Now, this language of put to death is a little bit extreme. And if you're new to church things, it, it probably smacks a bit of, sort of monastic self-flagellation. But it just reflects the deadly serious nature of the enemy we face. Paul's point is, look, sin is trying to kill you. That's why you've got those sharp contrasts in verse 13. If you live by the sinful desires, you'll die. But if you put sinful deeds to death, you'll live. Don't tolerate sin in your heart any more than you tolerate gangrene in your body. Cut it out. Destroy it before it spreads and destroys you. In other words, his point is, it's kill or be killed when it comes to my sin. Not the sins of others, my sin. What does that mean? Well, uh, a guy who used to be here struggled with looking at stuff he shouldn't have on his, on his um, phone. So he didn't resolve to try harder. He got rid of his phone and got an old Nokia brick instead. Uh, people who struggle with pride or self-obsession sign up and serve at crash. Kill pride and self-obsession because the babies don't care and they don't say thank you. It's good for us. And one key way, I think, to put any sin to death is to bring it into the light. Sin thrives in darkness and it loses some of its power. And we bring it in the light and, and just tell a close Christian friend about the struggle with pride or whatever. It loses some power when we tell somebody else. And it's, it's an admission, oh, look, I'd rather... I'd rather suffer the shame of telling you than carry on with this sin. And also it means you, somebody else can keep alert to signs of it. And I, one other thing with sin is it's a whole lot easier to spot in other people than in me. So if I've told a good friend, look, I really struggle with greed, self-obsession, whatever, they can spot the signs much more quickly than I can. It's why we have things like the men's and, and women's breakfasts and, and we encourage people to be in small groups so we can develop those friendships where we can help one another with people who we love and trust, who are for us and will help us put sin to death. See, sin is, is the opposite direction to God. Sin leads to death. God leads to fullness of life. You can't pursue sin and God. They're opposite directions. So the great theologian John Owen put it simply and starkly, you must leave your sin or your God. You can't pursue both. You must leave your sin or leave your God. Okay, three things I think really emerge when we start to think, okay, what does it look like to put these verses into practice? If I do want to live by the Spirit and, and behave more like a child of God, what does it look like? Well, it looks like gardening, horror movies and sailing, obviously. Um, let me explain. Now, unlike my mother, 
um, who will be uh, doing her stuff at the wreath making. I am not particularly green-fingered. I can't quite kill plastic plants, but I'm not great. But I do know one thing, which is I can spot the difference between a plant and a weed, which is fundamental and quite important. The difference is this. If it grows without any care, attention, or watering, it's a weed. Plants, plants require the right soil, the right amount of sunlight. They require the right amount of water. They require pruning. They require deadheading and aphid spray. They require all sorts of things. Weeds don't need any of that. They just grow and grow and grow. And sin is a weed. The sin in our hearts, it doesn't die if I go on holiday for a couple of weeks and forget to water it. Which is why Paul says, I have to put it to death. It won't just die. I've got to root it out. I've got to take active steps to kill it. But it doesn't, secondly, it doesn't stay dead when you put it to death. And in that sense, fighting sin is rather like a cheap horror movie. Now, I'm not sure whether many people here would say their particularly favourite oeuvre is, uh, is cheap horror movies. But I'm sure you're aware that almost every horror movie has sequels, lots of sequels. So Friday the 13th has, I believe at the moment, 11 sequels. And every time the studio is short on cash, another sequel seems to appear. Now, at the end of every single one of the movies, Jason, the, um, the villain, is dispatched. He's shot, stabbed, electrocuted and crushed to dust and then burned in a furnace. He's completely killed. And yet somehow or other, he reappears at the beginning of the next movie. And it's like that with sin. It's interesting, Paul in verse 13, he uses a present continuous tense. Put to death. Not a one-off thing, it's an ongoing thing. He says, put sin to death. In other words, slay it without mercy. But you need to understand, it won't stay dead. It'll come back. And when it does, you need to slay it again without mercy. And that's when you need to know it's also a bit like sailing. Because the thing with sailing is that although it requires a bit of effort, you've got to trim the sails and steer the boat, all the power comes from the wind. And you and I are not on our own in the fight against sin. As we struggle with the the powerful, sinful desires that remain in our hearts, even when we're Christians, God is with us. And not only with us, cheering us on from the sidelines, but in us by his spirit, empowering our, changing our desires so that we want to fight sin and empowering us to put it to death. This is what it means, actually, to be led by the spirit. Do you see, immediately after talking about putting sinful deeds to death, by the Spirit, verse 13, he says, 14, 4, those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. See how the two things fit together? People, Christians often uh, talk about being led by the Spirit as, as if it's all about um, God's guidance for tricky decisions in life, a kind of Holy Spirit sat-nav, that, you know, which job should I take? Well, the Spirit will tell me when I tune in and, and hear his voice. But in Romans 8, being led by the Spirit is not about discerning which job to take, It's about letting the spirit rather than the sinful nature rule. And so following his promptings to kill sin and to follow the example of Jesus. Now the fight against indwelling sin, the sin inside us, is at times brutal. And uh, I hope it's not too depressing to say it doesn't really get any easier. However, we do get tougher and wiser over the years. 
You see, the Christian life is not actually about settling into increasingly suburban ease and comfort. It's about growing braver and stronger, growing more dependent on God in prayer, more confident, not in me, but in the power of his spirit, able to tackle greater challenges for the glory of God and the good of others. It's about growing more confident in God's goodness and love and grace so that I take risks for him and love him more. In other words, it's about growing more like true sons and daughters of God. The Spirit empowers us to behave like children of God. And then secondly, the Spirit enables us to relate to God as as children of our Heavenly Father. So it will be confident that he loves and accepts us as a true father should. Verse 15, the Spirit you received... The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. I think Paul's aware. Look, all the talk of uh, of fighting sin might make us fearful that we relate to God really actually as his slaves, weighed down by the duty, I've got to fight sin, I've got to fight sin. And if I fail, God might reject me. But the spirit we're told is the spirit of adoption into sonship. Now, that becomes really extraordinary when you remember how God the Father relates to his true son, Jesus Christ, when he's on earth. When Jesus was baptized, Luke tells us the spirit descended on him and a voice thundered from heaven. And the fundamental thing God says to his son when he appears on earth is, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. And when we put our faith in Jesus, the Holy Spirit descends to take up permanent residence in us. And we are united with Jesus Christ. So God says to you, you are my son, my daughter, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. How do you know that an adopted child has become part of their new family? Well, in this country, uh, they have a court order to prove it and their name changes. Well, the Holy Spirit is our court order as Christians, proving we are children of God. He is our certificate of name change, that we are in Christ by him. And so he teaches us to pray, as we've just prayed a few minutes ago, with confidence that he will hear. If you're not normally part of a church, were you not struck by the prayers we just had? Just how confident and familiar how much of a sense there was of somebody speaking to a God they believed would listen. Well, that's the work of the Spirit. He enables us to to relate to him. This term Abba is is kind of like our, our term Daddy. It's a term of intimacy and delight. There are different kinds of access we can have to people. Um, you know, I have a ticket to the gig. Great. It means I can come in, I can enjoy the sweaty delights of live music, but I certainly won't get access to the band on stage. I have an appointment for the GP. Well done, you. Uh, It gives me five minutes of access in person, but it's only access to the professional medical opinion, and it's at their surgery, uh, not their home. I'm his son. Well, in a healthy family, that means I have unlimited access to the home. It means I have unlimited access also to his time, his energy, and definitely his wallet. Children children don't need a reason or an appointment in a good family. 
They have a right to be there and they're wanted there. You and I don't have a ticket or an appointment through the Holy Spirit with God the Father in heaven. Through Jesus, we are God's children. We're much loved, always welcome, with full access to all he has and all he is. See, this really takes us back to the obligation language of verse 12. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation not to the flesh to live according to it. So you could say uh, a child adopted out of a horrible, abusive, neglectful mess has an obligation in these terms to come home to their new loving family rather than after school each day to run back to the squalor and misery of their former life. And if you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have an obligation to come to God as Father, confidently crying out, Abba, Father, rather than keeping a respectful distance from God. You have an obligation to enjoy the privilege, the security and the delight of knowing God loves you. God is for you. And you are his. And wonderfully, the Spirit works in us to enable us to believe that we, even we, are true children of God. Verse 16, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we're children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. In other words, he says the Spirit helps us each day to know we're children of God, and we need his help. Because I don't often look like a child of God, I don't often feel like a child of God, and I don't often behave like a child of God. I mean, look at yourself in the mirror in the morning, first thing. Do you see, staring back at you, wow, If anything on this planet looks like a child of the Most High God, destined to reign the universe forever, that's you. (laughs) Now, I don't care what bathroom lighting you have. I don't think any of us, unless we're very deeply deluded, sees that in the morning. And some days I don't feel anything as a Christian. I don't feel any love for God. And I don't feel like he loves me. Some days, too many days, my behavior makes me look nothing like my older brother Jesus. My behavior looks like a child of sin, not a child of God. And so in the cold light of every day, we need the Spirit's help that in spite of all that, we might come before God and address him as Father. Now, how does he do that? I don't think when he says the Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are God's children, he's talking about a mystical voice audibly saying, you really are God's child. It's simpler than that. I think it's just the very fact that we feel able to pray to God is down to the Spirit's work reassuring us, you are his child, he will listen. Likewise, when when we sin and we're tempted to stay away from God, what is it that makes us believe Now I can come back to God and he will forgive me. It's the Spirit who enables us to believe the promises of Scripture, that God will welcome us back with open, forgiving arms. So don't neglect that privilege. Use it often. I guess the most obvious way we we do is in prayer. That's the most obvious way we enjoy the privilege of being children of God. Jesus taught us real prayer begins with a conscious enjoyment of the fact we have access to God as our Father. There's revolutionary words that we've prayed already. Our Father in heaven. 
not just, O King of the universe, O Holy God, O Mighty Judge, but our Father. You seen the John Lewis tearjerker of a Christmas advert? It's a, it is quite a tearjerker. But imagine you're adopting a child for Christmas at Christmas time. And they're moving in just before Christmas. Or your parents are doing that. And come Christmas Day, the, the child that you've, uh, you've adopted into your family, they don't open any of their presents with the rest of the family. Presents with their name under the tree, but they just sit there respectfully. See, the other kids are opening the presents, why aren't you? I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to presume they're for me. And after they finally have opened them because you convinced them to and played with them a bit, they, they say thank you and hand them back. And instead of hugging you, they shake your hand. It was kind of you to let me have them for a bit. What? I didn't pay for them. And then Boxing Day, they have a massive, massive meltdown. And that evening, they pack their bags and you find them trying to leave the house. What are you, what are you doing? Well, the way I behave shows I don't belong in this family. So I thought I'd leave and you can decide in the new year whether, uh, whether you want me to try again. I'm sorry, you've, you've misunderstood the whole thing. You're not a guest who will leave if their behaviour doesn't match the family. You're our child. You have as much right to be here as we do. These presents are yours. What we want you to do is to enjoy them. What we want you to do is feel confident and comfortable that our love for you is never going to change, that you're our child, that we want you here, that you belong here, that this is your family. Nothing can change that. Now, God's spirit, verse 15, is the spirit of adoption. And central to what he wants to do is to convince you, you, even you, even me, are wanted and loved by God and he wants you to relate to him as a child of a loving father. He sent his spirit so you would enjoy living as a child of God. Not fighting sin because, well, he's a mean headmaster and you've got to get rid of it, but he wants you free of the misery and mess. He wants, he wants you to enjoy life to the full like his son Jesus. And he wants you to confidently know that you are loved unconditionally and eternally. In the desperate human longing for identity, nothing is deeper, nothing is richer, nothing is more stable and nothing is more empowering than to know that you are a child of God by grace. In a desperately confused culture, few things could be as magnetic as a community that is growing up together in that confidence and that love and that acceptance. Let me say to you this morning, if you, hand on your heart, would not say you're confident God is your father, then I have good news for you, which is that the greatest privilege Christianity has to offer is something you've yet to unwrap, yet to discover. And I would love to help you do that afterwards. If you do know God as your father, then make much of that privilege. Press in to know him more and encourage others that they too would enjoy it to the full.
build that relationship in prayer each day and build others into it too. Let's pray. Our Father God, we thank you that your spirit is the spirit of adoption for you want us to know that you are our loving Heavenly Father. Help us, we pray, to grasp this, to own it in our daily lives. Help us to see how rich and full it is to be led by the Spirit, to get rid of sin and live out the fullness of life you want for us. Help us to enjoy the wonder of confident access to you in prayer, knowing that we can cry out, Abba, Father, and you love us unconditionally. Father, we praise you for this and pray that we might build our lives on it for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ and for the good of a lost culture. In Jesus' name, amen.